0: tell you, I have had a few packages stolen recently.
1: Well, oh, they're gonna make somebody sign for this. Uh,
0: okay, good. They're not gonna okay. leave a,
1: a $1,500 computer just sitting like, in the hallway.
0: It was a very strange thing. It happened with my wine that I ordered for delivery the other day, like through one of those apps. Like, it was so bizarre. My wine, it said it was delivered, it never showed up. I called the place. They talked to the delivery guy. He said he left it with a small. Bald man who uh, was like on my landing and seemed like he knew me, and I was like, "What the fuck?"
1: Just some random ass bald dude, huh?
0: There is a small man stealing my stealing my stuff in my building. I'm like, "Dude, you if know, I ever find that guy,
1: it, fuck him up." You're never gonna find him because it was the perfect crime. <laughs> <laughs> the wine crime. The wine crime. It's
0: the, and someone stole my wine glasses, too. So <laughs> it had to
1: be the same guy. <laughs> someone got wine
0: and glasses. Yeah, they were just waiting around.
1: <laughs> he got the wine, and then he's like, oh, God, I bet she's getting glasses, too, and then waited to, to get those as well. It's pretty brilliant, I got to say. Good job, small bald man. Uh, <laughs> anyways. That's
0: what happens when I, t- when I broadcast to the world that I'm getting into wine, you
1: know? <laughs> These vultures just swoop into your landing. Um, that's a good maybe cold open. I don't know. You want to start the show?
0: Yeah, sure.
1: All right. Moving um, on from wine crimes. Yeah, if
0: you see a drunken leprechaun somewhere, <laughs> um, please make a citizen's arrest on my behalf.
1: I'll, I'll stick the wine cops on them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jamie Peck,
0: wine detective. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just uh, from Taverna to Taverna, just doing that, that tough detective work necessary to solve all the wine crimes.
0: The only, the, That's the only kind of cops that will exist after the revolution. <laughs> They're just like cute wine moms who go around and solve wine crimes. And the penalty <laughs> is that you have to give the wine back.
1: Bodies of armed men, but it's just they've got uh, wine corks and they go around and they uh, re-purloined stolen wines.
0: I like yep. that.
1: I like that. Uh, do you want to start or should I?
0: Oh, um, you, whatever. You're good
1: at starting. Go ahead and start.
0: Uh, hello and welcome to the Antifada where unrest is... It's it's all right with caveats.
1: Yeah. it's ups, It has its ups and downs.
0: We used to say unrest is best, you see, but um, we realized that maybe it's not always necessary. We're just... We just ruin everything.
1: Well, That's what we do. You know what it is, too, is that uh, that was a reference to majority report. And I feel like not that we've left majority report behind, but we have, like, I think, moved on to our own level now and not sure that we need to reference left is best, I think, Uh, or kind of our own thing. So new slogan sometime soon. I don't know.
0: I like that. I do. Uh, All right. Well, (laughs) somebody came up with that uh, for us. I really wish that we had had this talk before I got it tattooed on my body, but um, (laughs) it's all right. Maybe I'll tattoo it over with the next one.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, uh, I'm Sean KB. I'm
0: Jamie Peck.
1: And we have no Andy today, but we have a wonderful guest, a delightful guest, an old, old friend of the show, uh, Aaron Bonanev. What's up, man?
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Good. Did I pronounce your name right? Close enough. Oh, man. I feel like a it's jerk now. Be-
0: Beninov? Benanov?
1: Beninov, yeah. Benanov. I've known you since like 2010, but yet this entire time I've slept on learning how to
2: um, pronounce your name. It's fucked up. You know, I just, I'm used to whatever people say. It's a, it's a tough one for people for some reason. A
0: little bit you know, tough. I'm, a, I'm a little bit jealous uh of the v at the end of your name because my family too once had a v but they took it from us at ellis island
1: Well, oh, that's probably for the best though given what that name was right
0: pecker off with a v would have been a well <laughs> no, no i don't know
1: you still would have caught it
0: <laughs> <laughs> i catch it anyway Ugh. yeah sure haters gonna hate <laughs>
1: well uh Either thanks or fuck you to Ellis Island for that one. But uh, Aaron's got a uh, new book out from Verso Books. It's called Automation and the Future of Work. It's a nice, short, and powerful uh, critique of not only capitalism since you know the 1970s or so, but also a lot of the discourse around uh, job loss and automation and UBI and all the sorts of ways that... Uh, yeah, liberal theorists especially are trying to figure out uh, a future where it seems as though, or at least they're purporting that, more and more jobs are going to be lost in all sorts of sectors that uh, we can barely anticipate at this point. So, excellent book, and uh, yeah, we're going to talk about it, Aaron. What, uh, what, what caused you? Uh, what, how did this book come about?
2: Hmm. Well, um, I I had done a lot of research on the question of why there were so many people in the world without jobs. And I guess I had written my dissertation uh, in graduate school about that topic. And so I was in the process of writing about, you know, what's really going on, why there are so many people in the world who need work and can't find it. And while I was doing that, um, this, this, you know, pretty vibrant discussion that explained those trends around the world with like a a big global account, um, this automation story became really popular and even became the basis of a, you know, a long shot presidential campaign from from Andrew Yang. And yeah, so, I was going to uh, say, thank
1: you for uh, validating my vote in the primaries for Andrew Yang.
2: Appreciate that. Yeah, it really helped me, uh, you know, get this book out. So, and I've actually... I, I think I'm one of I don't know actually I don't know how many people have read his book, but I've actually read Andrew Yang's book, The War on Normal People so uh we could we could talk about that. It is really interesting well, I guess the thing that's really interesting about it is that at the end it depicts this crazy like right wing trucker rebellion oh. that leads to fascism in the United States. It's like a whole narrative. Oh, man what that would look like. I mean,
0: <laughs> the, the truckers historically have not always sided with the people. So, true. thinking about Chile.
2: Well, if you yeah.
1: look at the United States, you had the great uh, Trotskyist teamster struggles, the general strike in Minneapolis, but you also had the convoys in the 1970s protesting gas prices and uh, turning kind of, you know, right libertarian at that point in time. So, it's always been kind of a mixed bag logistics. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, in any case, I I was reading that material and I just you know was it was it seemed like a really important intervention to make at the time. You know, it's funny. I actually wrote two pieces. One was a critique of this um, uh, really important labor notes uh, theorist Kim Moody. Mm, yes, a book saying that in fact the working class is coming roaring back in the form of the logistics sector. And then I wrote a critique of that for Viewpoint magazine, which never, they never published this big roundtable they were doing. And then the other text I wrote was this one about automation. Um, but while I was writing about automation, I, I just realized like how cool it was that these people had um, these amazing science fiction visions of a post-work utopian world. And I got really excited about all of the sci-fi and utopian elements. And I, I sort of came around to the idea that we need a really convincing and exciting positive vision of the future to animate our struggles. And that's sort of like where the book ends up.
0: Now, I agree with you about that. I, I guess maybe this is a question for later, but I'll say it now, whatever. Because uh, there is a real like anti-utopian strain in a lot of Marxist thinking. You know, Marx himself said, it's not up to me to write out receipts for the cookshops of the future. And, you know, a lot of my comrades are like, oh, Jamie, you're so crazy, always skipping ahead steps. Like, we can't even begin to figure out what communism is going to be right now before we have, um, you know, state socialism. We got to go in the, got to, got to follow the steps, steps got to work and the stages. steps. Yeah. And Trust I'm like, it. well, look, maybe this is childish or naive yeah. of me, but uh, if we want the majority of the working class to sign on to this thing um we should have like some idea of how it's gonna work and how it's gonna be better than what we have now instead of worse because like people it's it's gonna be really really fucking hard to get there like people will die for this probably and um i'm not signing up to die for something if i don't know what the fuck it is
1: well and also too if if we seed this futurism if we seed uh these visions of a better world, a more just and humane world to the Andrew Yangs of the world, to the Silicon Valley technocrats and theorists, then uh, that's a whole social imaginary that we're giving up to like right libertarian fantasies about automating everything away and giving people just enough to survive. And that's not terrain we should give up easily.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I think that there's two things or maybe three. Like one is that, clearly, um, we clearly like we don't need, I don't think that we should be coming up with blueprints for the future, right? I don't think we need like a detailed account of our particular vision of what it would look like. That's a bit, you know, I mean, that's silly basically for a lot of reasons. Um, but on the other hand, it's, there's two things that we have to think about. One is that I think that even when average working class people and working class militants, even if they didn't have an exact account of what socialism or communism would look like, they had a pretty good idea and they could explain to other people in like five sentences what motivated them and what would be so much better about the coming world than the world that they live in. And what amazes me is that like, I think myself included, but also so many of the people I know, like Jamie was saying, like, they have no five sentences. Like they couldn't even basically explain to people why communism would be better. They're sort of like in, in in the place of having a positive account of the world they want, they lay out the catastrophe of the present moment. And that turns out not to be enough. Like that can lead to a very kind of nihilistic perspective i guess right and then the other thing obviously is just that in the 20th century there really were all these experiments with socialism and there were all these attempts to put it into practice and we can have our account of why those things had nothing to do with socialism or communism and we can have really good good explanations for that but that just means like all the more that we need some basic version some basic account of the world that we're fighting to create
0: all right, we are off with some spicy com takes. I like it. Um, okay, let's start with this. Let's back up a little. Um, let's start with the automation discourse. You started to talk about it a little bit, but um, what are the assumptions at work here? Um, what are the solutions that they propose? Why have they become popular at this particular moment? And how do they think we will get to a freer, more humane, and maybe even socialist or communist future. P.S., uh, very clever of you to name your book something that makes it sound like it, too, is automation discourse.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, you know, it, that's a funny story, actually, which I don't know that I've told. Um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, probably you know this, <clears throat> but, like, usually when you when you write something, the editor's, just they they give you the title like you don't really most most articles you don't get to choose your own title, so um, I just don't even think about it anymore like I don't even I just put some header on my text and send them in because oh. who cares I'm not going to waste time coming up with something, so um, so I just wrote like the subject of my text at the top of my articles and 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 then it was just it was so surprising to me that um, that the New Left Review just like kept that as the title of the articles that they published uh-huh. then. And then when it came time to do the book, I was like, well, we should really change the title. Like, it's kind of funny that that's what it's called. And they were like, no, 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 this is a great title. You should keep." It. And I'm actually really bad at titles, So I didn't, you know, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe you'll have to tell me what the book should have been called. I, I have no idea uh, what should it have been called. No, Jamie? I think it it's was a great very gambit.
0: clever marketing idea. And I want, I Like, I think it's good if people think it's automation discourse and then they pick it up and they find out what's actually going on. So, good job. Yeah, think of all okay. the Yang
1: gang who are going to be looking at, like, a critique of unemployment discourse and looking at, like, a Brennerite analysis of capitalism since the 1970s and underemployment and all that. It's great. So, I'm yeah. going to
0: sneak
2: it in. I snuck it. I did sneak it in. I snuck I'm,
0: it in. I'm planning to disguise bi political treatise as chick lit. So... Um, Yes, you're you're a step ahead of me,
1: and I'm going to um, use Twitch gaming, uh, playing paradox games in order to ruin the minds of so many American youth and bring them towards the the way of the light, the path of good, the the, the <laughs> communist uh, future and horizon. So so yeah. this this automation discourse, which you've now entered into what what's it all about? I think some people are vaguely familiar with it, but you've done sort of a, a deep analysis and like imminent critique of how. Uh, liberal ideologues and technocrats are trying to understand a future where so many Americans are and and workers across the globe are going to be useless anymore for capital.
2: Yeah, of course. So obviously, I think people know that there's just a lot of talk right now about robots and you know um, machine learning and possibly new forms of artificial intelligence, neural networks, all of this kind of stuff that. The idea is that we're living in a moment of incredible technological breakthrough and that this wave of brilliant technologies have already begun to transform um, the working world. And essentially what they're doing is they are just, you know, making more and more jobs obsolete. And so in their view, the view of the automation theorists, uh, this is already happening. It's going to happen more and more. Um, And it explains why so many people face such intense job insecurity, why inequality has become so bad, why we increasingly live in a kind of like monopoly um, society ruled by digital overlords and so on. And they say, look, you know, this this is a nightmare. It's becoming a nightmare. It's going to get even worse. Um, but it could be beautiful. I mean, think about how amazing it is, they say, that we could live in a world where people don't really have to work and where we live in like a post-scarcity world of of endless machine-created abundance. Um, We only need to like change a little piece of society in order to flip from the nightmare into the beautiful dream. And the way to do that, they say, is to adopt a universal basic income basically as people are losing their jobs they can't afford to buy all of this great stuff so we just give them money and then that money allows them to buy all the great things that the machines are producing and so this is a view that's being expounded by like mit technologists but it's also something that you know not just um andrew yang but like barack obama was saying it uh, uh, Robert Reich, um, all of these people, like liberal Silicon Valley people, um, and even people who are on the communist uh, left, like uh, Nick Cernachek and Alex Williams, obviously um, Aaron Bastani at Navarra Media. So this is a really big Peter idea. Peter
0: Fraze, we've had him on this show.
2: There you go. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not I, I'm actually as I was trying to say I'm a huge fan of the left wing of this discourse and I'm a huge fan of science fiction because the aspect of this story that I really like is first of all that it it really focuses our attention on how bad things have gotten for working people like it really forces us to pay attention to just how bad the labor markets become, why it's so hard for people to get jobs. And as a result of that, why people who do have jobs feel so insecure and powerless in their workplaces, right? They lack autonomy. They lack kind of power uh, at work. And they're always worried about losing their jobs. Um, So it focuses on us on that very real problem. And it tries to imagine really transformative solutions as well. I mean, you know, UBI is, and I, you know, we can talk about my criticisms of it, but it's a very beautiful idea that just for being a human being, you should be able to, you know, live a decent life and and those things should never be in question and nothing about you should ever, ever allow that uh, to be taken away. So there's something really enticing about this. It just happens to be uh, wrong. That's the only (laughs) problem with it.
1: Let's talk about some assumptions that...
0: That was, that was a nice compliment sandwich though.
1: Bravo. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the assumptions that these theorists make on political economy, which you very much uh, attempt to and do a really good job of uh, you know, collapsing in, in, into, a, in, into a more robust theory. So you lay out in your book that the reason the demand for labor really is dropping worldwide is not due, as these people would say, primarily to increases in productivity, that is output per worker uh, brought on by technological innovation, but a decrease in output growth caused by market overcapacity, which is to say too much shit to sell and not enough people to buy it, an overaccumulation of capital, uh, an overhang in industrial uh, production. Can you briefly summarize what's been going on since the 1970s? Um, the global population is growing, but what's what's going on with the economy now that uh, gives rise to all these ideas and these fears?
2: Yeah, so, well, you know, you, you, you said that quite well. I think the the, the kind of Something that might be counterintuitive for people if they're not super familiar with economic concepts is that um, if robots and computers really were replacing all of these workers, uh, that would show up as higher and higher levels of labor productivity. So it'd seem like workers are producing more and more precisely because workers are being replaced. And the reason for that is that when you measure labor productivity, you're not measuring like the productivity of you, you know, Sean, as an individual worker, you're measuring like how much stuff is being produced divided by how many hours everyone is working, like in a whole sector, for example, or in the whole economy. And so as people were being replaced with machines, it would seem like the workers who are left are making more and more stuff, right? Because they're making it without the help, all of their all of their fellow workers are are being transformed into robots. So you'd expect if automation were happening, that labor productivity would be rising at an accelerating pace. And it's just obvious that that's not happening. There is no evidence that that's happening. Um, And in fact, you know, for the whole economy, labor productivity growth rates have really fallen pretty significantly over time. Um, and so in the book, I, I explain why that's happening and why, um, even though labor productivity isn't rising very quickly, we still have this gigantic problem of what I call a persistently low demand for labor. And I'll just say briefly, the reason why I say that is the book, the book explains why unemployment just isn't a very good measure of, like, the overall health of the labor market. We live in a time where um, governments have, like, made it much harder for people to get unemployment benefits, plus tons of people in the world live in countries that don't have unemployment insurance. And that means people have to find jobs just as quickly as they can after they lose their jobs or when they enter the labor market. So the unemployment rate isn't a very good measure of this persistently low demand for labor. So what's really causing that phenomenon? Two things that you need to understand. One is, uh, as you said, there's just, it's not really just a story of new technologies being adopted, but also that more and more countries have gotten in on the game of producing industrial goods. Like basically, it's not just about new technologies, but about the spread of technological and productive capacities across the world. And in essence, people know this story. They know that we live in a time of global hyper competitiveness, of races to the bottom, right? Of, you know, Um, companies looking for places where there's tons of workers, and then they put factories that only apply, uh, only employ a tiny share of those workers, right? And they give them very low wages. And then there's like global competition up and down at every level of these supply chains. And the result is that um, internationally, industry is really oversupplied. And yet, companies all over the world, countries all over the world are encouraging companies to keep entering industrial lines. Why are they doing that? Really, it's because the situation's even worse in agriculture. It's way worse in agriculture. Overproduction agriculture globally is extreme. Um, And there's just no other way than finding a place in industrial supply chains to be part of the world economy. Services represent an incredibly small share of global trade. And most of the services that are traded are the kinds of services produced in like London, like financial services and so on, um, maybe tourism. But so the result of all of this is that like countries have to try to get out in on industry. Industry's been globally massively oversupplied. The whole world is deindustrializing over time. Um, and services, which are the remaining sector of the economy that could generate rapid growth, are just incapable of doing that because services, by definition, basically, don't get mechanized. They don't experience the kinds of rapid productivity growth that's possible in industry and as it were in industrialized agriculture as well. So the result of this whole story is that it's not really about brilliant new technologies causing productivity growth to rise so quickly that all these jobs are being destroyed. It's really about um, industry becoming so overcapacitated globally that industrial growth rates are driven down economies slow down, uh, jobs are not created as fast as they used to be, and most people are ending up in the uh, low-wage sector of um, uh, low-wage parts of the service sector where productivity growth rates are low, wages are low, and insecurity is very high. So I I hope that's a relatively clear version of it. I I'm always trying to figure out how to talk through things when I don't have the crutch of my little graphs and charts to back me up.
1: No, I think that was great. I think that was concise and clear. So really what you... I'll
0: I'll, I'll take your word for it, Sean, because your gaming desktop arrived at my house right in the <laughs> middle of that, and I had to go answer the door. Oh,
1: thank God. Is it safe, or is the bald man going to get it?
0: It's in my house right now. Oh, that's
1: so awesome. Cool. I'll come so... by... Uh... Come by after work, I almost said. Come by after podcast. (laughs) So (laughs) you missed Aaron's wonderful summation of the argument that essentially it's not an unemployment problem per se, but it is a persistent Mm -hmm. underemployment problem across the globe uh, dating back to, uh, you know, the, the neoliberal turn, as we can call it.
0: We talk about that a lot on this show. Steve's starting to think like it's kind of important.
1: This is the key, I think, to understanding so much uh, about about society. I think it's it's funny how everybody, and I include Aaron in this, uh, who was affiliated with or got deep into Endnotes, either became like an ultra psycho, like doing crazy shit mm-hmm. in the streets, or just like a good, stayed, like powerful Brennerite.
0: Oh, poor Canola's (laughs) does. Yeah, we can do both. (laughs) Find you a man who can do both. Okay. (laughs) The two genres. So so I guess maybe you talked about this a little bit uh, already, but uh, yeah, you're talking about the period from 1945 to 1975, right? We saw a lot of rapid growth fueled by industrial manufacturing and that is what allowed all of those concessions to be granted to the labor movement right because you had profits to spare you had profits to go around we could create this great middle class yada yada um and that in turn grew people's power to buy shit but now that's done manufacturing is canceled and uh (laughs) nothing has been able to match its success as an engine of growth um Why is that? Why is manufacturing so magical? Um, And why couldn't service workers today, like, I don't know, at a fancy hotel chain, um, organize for the same kinds of benefits that factory workers enjoyed in the 1960s?
2: Manufacturing is canceled. I'm friends with low-wage services now. (laughs) Uh, Glad we're all up on our
1: memes.
2: (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, you know... It's so the reason why manufacturing turns out to be unique is interesting. Um, there's a few reasons. One is just that, like, I mean, I guess one way to think about it is we could talk about it in terms of Marxism, which is a familiar language to, to you and, uh, and your listeners. That's right. So, like, Marx made this distinction between formal subsumption. And real subsumption, which is like, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about that on your show, Sure. but um, formal subsumption is just like when capitalism takes over some labor process that had existed before capitalism, you know. Like, there there, there are domestic servants and maids, you know, cleaning in the household, and, like, today there are are people who basically do the same job, but instead of being employed directly by, you know, wealthy um, uh, people to clean their homes, there's, like, a a business, right, that employs those people to do that work, Um, and that's what Marx called formal subsumption. Real subsumption is when capitalists then go in and, like, transform that labor process, break it apart and reassemble it so that it is amenable to persistent, constant, pure, you know, incremental changes in productivity over time. And basically the main way that this real subsumption takes place is something like industrializing the work process. So even where we see services that um, have higher productivity growth, it's generally because they've been made to look more like a factory. So think about like fast food work, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of industrialized food production or warehouse work, right? With the new types of like kind of almost like assembly lines and warehouses. It's a kind of industrialized work. Or even industrialized agriculture. Like agriculture used to be a really lagging sector in terms of productivity. It was really hard to raise productivity in agriculture. Until this whole revolution in agricultural technologies that involved fertilizers, hybridized crops, new forms of mechanical like farm implements, um, suddenly made farming and of course, you know, confined animal feeding operations, like make farming look more like an industrial process. And then you get the kind of productivity growth that makes it possible to essentially, like you said, share that growth with workers, right? Like workers' wages can grow at the rate of productivity growth and everyone can benefit, as it were, even though you still live in a class society, you can have rising wages and broadly shared economic growth. It's not necessarily the case. Like industrial growth, although it's faster, it only creates the conditions for workers' movements to you know, expand and generate unions and social democratic parties, like they have to fight really hard, even to benefit from that, right? Even under those auspicious conditions, often because there are, there are either like a lot of people still in agriculture, or in the case of the U.S., there's all of these people emigrating into the U.S., um, so it's hard for workers to fight for those conditions. Um but they can under industrial growth. But when we live in this period, as you said, once the industrial engine has run out, and it really has, it's not like you can go back to that period before. Um, not unless 40- you
1: destroy enough capital, but we don't want that because that would probably be another war.
2: Yeah, but it would probably be really hard to imagine that happening just yeah. because of, industri- of uh, nuclear weapons and stuff, right? And even that, I mean, we could talk about that. I don't totally believe in the capital destruction thesis about okay. what World War II did. I think it was way more about the way that it politically allowed for um, especially Europe, but also other places to like combine their markets and continue the process of proletarianization that had been cut off by a lot of um uh tariffs and like you know, trade restrictions during the interwar period. But in any case, like once that process took place, and we really saw the greatest industrial build-out in world history between 1945 and 1975, you now just have so many countries with urban industrial workers and educated workforces that it's just really hard for a few countries in the world to like monopolize industrial growth and generate the kind of incredible um, growth rates, or persistently high growth rates anyway, that uh, that would let that kind of thing happen, and so what we're left with today are economies where um, the remaining growth engine is services, and for the most part, services suffer from just really low productivity growth. So even today, in a place like the U.S., uh, or take like Japan or Germany, um, which are you know major uh, advanced capitalist country um, economies. In industry, productivity grows at about like 2.5% per year or something like that, which is pretty fast over over a very long period of time. But industry makes up a very small portion of the economy. The overall productivity growth rate is 0.7% per year. It's not even 1%. So it's like really slow. And under those conditions, for the rich to get ever richer, they just need to get as much of that growth as possible. They can't share any of it in order for them to still see like rising income. So there's very little possibility of sharing it. Uh, and you know, we could talk about differences between countries like France, where it actually is more shared, and French. The French economy grows at a really slow rate compared to the U.S., which grows somewhat faster, but you know, the working class sees, like, an incredibly low rate of um, wage growth over time. That's so, yeah, in it. any case, those those conditions, because services aren't amenable to the kinds of transformations that turn that most services can't be made to look like industrialized processes with constant uh, incremental increases in productivity, but rather suffer from this very slow rate of productivity growth, you're crunching down the space of growth and you're making it so capitalists need to really force wages down as much as possible to see their own incomes grow at what they believe is a reasonable pace. Yeah, let's, uh, let's tie
1: this grounding in pol- political economy into the object of analysis, which is uh, universal basic income and their theorists, right? So you cite in your book uh, an essay called The Capitalist Road to Communism, and you say that UBI could possibly work as a transitional program if the dropping demand for labor were due to automation, uh, which is presumably is galloping towards full automation in this particular scenario, but not if it's due to slow output growth, can you explain why that is? Is it because there are simply more profits to go around in the automated future? Is it because the capitalists would be more chill about giving up power over workers if they think they wouldn't need them all very soon why? Why wouldn't uh, why would capitalists fight tooth and nail against redistribution
2: of their surplus in one scenario, but not in the other? That's a great question. I mean, I think the truth is that they would fight tooth and nail anyway, right? Like it'd be pretty hard to make that change, even in a even in an automating world. And I think you know one of the books I like best from that whole sort of automation discourse kind of environment is Peter Fraze's Four Futures. Because he really says, like, look, you know, you can totally have a world where um, you overcome, like, labor scarcity. You don't need workers anymore. And yet, you know, the rich just monopolize all the benefits of this automating technology. And then you have a kind of renterism. Uh, One of the big problems with the automation discourse is that they sort of seem to think like, I think there's a there's a reason why technocratic like there's a reason why technological determinism tends to come with like technocracy in some way. Like they just say, if we could just get people to really see the problem, then they just see it's like an objective problem. And, you know, we should just solve it without politics. And they think UBI is a kind of post political solution. Um, But even that, I think, isn't really too realistic. And I think Peter Frey's really captures that um, quite well. But the reason why that solution definitely won't work for us is that, yeah, in the automation story, it's really just a distributional problem. Like production is going great. And in fact, Mm. people are being freed from drudgery, right? Like people are having to do less and less crappy jobs. All these jobs are going away. Um, there's no more problem of production the problem of production has been solved and all that remains for society is to solve its distributional problem and if there's just more and more stuff it just it kind of almost seems like the poor would only need one replicator or one ai robot right to to be able to have um, more or less everything they need anyway so in the kind of like automation story, you can see why UBI solves it because all that remains is a distributional problem. You just need to give people money or you need to give them some way anyway, like replicators or something, that they can access what they need um, just like the rich can. If it's the case, by contrast, that there really is a problem with the production system itself and the relations of production, then that uh, is just a different kind of beast. It's a different kind of problem. And we have to think about not just like redistributing uh, the goods that are produced, though that is also really important, but also changing how we do production and what kinds of relations of production we have. And that pushes us towards dealing with a really big problem, which I gesture at in the book, but don't really solve, which is like, you have to go back and think about what it means for humanity to consciously plan its, you know, productive activity and stuff like that. So that's a big problem that the automation theorists kind of avoid by turning into a purely distributional struggle.
0: Right. Right. I think you say in your book, um, that the UBI decouples income from work, but we need to decouple it from profits because there just are not enough profits to go around. But counterpoint though, what if we use MMT and fire up the magical money printer?
2: (laughs) Go burr. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think, the two most radical liberal proposals today are ubi and something like massive public investment those are really radical and interesting programs and we should we should both be kind of like thinking about them as components of of a of a of a like they're pointing towards they're pointing towards you know, the beautiful horizon of communism, but like in the wrong way, right? And so we need to think, take those things really seriously. And I think, you know, we can criticize MMT for like, being a bit silly and not understanding like, why if you just start printing money, you know, the capitalists aren't just going to go like, Oh, no, there's so much money. There's yeah, nothing you got we us. can do now. <laughs> you beat us. You found the secret weapon. But, um, but, you know, it's still important to understand that, yeah, like, in a way, if, you know, if the masses of working people can, like, wrest away control of the investment function from the capitalists, like, the decision about how much productive activity will take place, if we can wrest that away from them... And democratize it, that is like starting to think about what it would mean in a serious way. That I think is a lot more serious than like proposals of the Green New Deal and stuff like that, that don't involve really wresting away control over uh-huh. the economy, but rather like using the state to stimulate private investment and like leaving control of investment in the hands of the capitalists. So these are, you know, I, I have criticisms of these things, but I just want to make it clear that, like, one, the people proposing things like UBI and public investment, they are like trying to get to the beautiful world, right? They're just doing it in a way that won't work. And we need to provide much better solutions to those kind of problems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You point to, I think, um, uh, Uh, The historical phenomenon of uh, Keynesian thought about the future, especially Keynes' famous uh, economic possibilities of our grandchildren. You point in your book to um, the beverage plan of 1944 in the UK, which was a plan to allegedly wind capitalism down by the 1960s. Uh, This moment of high Keynesianism, this uh, non-Marxist socialist utopia envisioned at the end of the Second World War. But ultimately you say it wasn't the fear of full unemployment. And we had full employment uh, plans in the United States, you know, all the way up until the 1970s. It wasn't the fear of full employment that made these high Keynesian plans uh, non-starters. It was the fact that it was around state control of investment of the social surplus, right? Uh, The state taking the prerogative uh, of capital from it. So explain how this makes a peaceful transition to this automated utopia, basically impossible you know, as these people imagine it in this technocratic way and how the history of, uh, of the old Keynesian dreams of a 15 hour work week and on, you know, almost unlimited leisure and prosperity for the working classes ties into a lot of this discourse in today's uh, UBI mo- movement moment. And also uh, MMT, of course, too. <laughs> oh,
2: that's just no small task, but I'll get I mean, I, yeah. So Like their idea is like, oh, we we've discovered a way to like keep the American Republic alive forever. Like they just are like, oh, we found a method to stabilize capitalism forever.
0: And that's Well there's no alternative in their minds.
2: Exactly. But the the British and European Keynesians were like trying to radically reconstruct society um, through like one last push of capitalist development. And I think that those people like I don't th- I think there's a lot of reasons why it didn't happen. And the Beveridge plan was like the Beveridge full employment plan, not the the NHS thing people got really excited about. And so he thought, "Oh, I can make this proposal for radically reconstructing society." But then his proposal became like the enemy that everyone else was thinking, like whatever we mean by full employment, it can't be what Beveridge uh-huh. wants to do. Because what Beveridge wanted to do was for the state to take over the investment function for like a very large portion of investment to be public investment, and for that public investment to be directly focused on improving the lives of working class people. So he was like, let's take you know a large part of investment and just devote it to health, education, um, um, you know, improving public housing and uh, getting rid of poverty. And then once we've done that for about twenty-five years we'll just say, like, we've created a world that's really nice for working class people to live in, and now we're going to, like, reduce income inequality and radically shorten the work week. That was his, like, 25-year proposal. And, of course, it was widely rejected because, as you said, it's not that the capitalists were worried about there being full employment. It's that they wanted to be the ones to determine whether there was full employment or not because workers can get really powerful when there's full employment, right? So capitalists need to know... That they have the capacity to take the pressure off of the accumulation pedal, create unemployment, and resubject workers to the discipline of the labor market, um, and so the, the the world we got after World War II was not a Keynesian world. And I think that the opposition Keynesian neoliberal is important, but there's really essential things that it misses. And one of the things it misses is that the post World War II order was in no way constructed as a Keynesian order. It was an export-led growth model in which countries would only be able to get full employment insofar as they really promoted export-led growth, kind of suppression of real wage growth um, to like allowable limits of export-led growth, and therefore capital, like private capital remaining in the driver's seat. And when the crisis came in the 70s, that was supposed to be the moment. When like, you know, the state or whoever or the working class like took over, wrested away control of the apparatus and took us in a different direction. Right. When the Meidner
1: plan is supposed to work.
2: Yeah. But of course, what we saw instead was like a massive class war, the reimposition of unemployment and labor market discipline in a really severe way. And yet you know, the growth engine never came back. Things just got worse and worse. Governments continuously subjected populations to austerity and labor market insecurity by saying, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Mm -hmm. And we just, you know, here we are. You know, it, Mm -hmm. it never worked and it's made the situation much worse. It's not that along the way, obviously, like, some countries have done very well, um, developmentally, right? Like there was a big growth spurt in East Asia and like South Korea. And then of course, China, which is a huge, huge part of the world's population, um, saw high rates of growth, but those high rates of growth, even in China were of course obtained with like massive increases in in country inequality, incredible amounts of pollution and, you know, really cutthroat competitive, um, uh, struggle to get into international industrial markets that led to a lot of other middle-income countries um, to see much slower growth in a kind of global zero-sum game. So it's a complicated story. That's all right.
0: I'm saying. Uh, kind of blew my mind, actually, when you said that what we think of as the Keynesian era really wasn't. And uh, it was way more Keynesian once we entered what we think of as the neoliberal era, because I feel like most people just think of uh, Keynesianism and that era as something being marked by, you know, large amounts of social spending on the welfare state and whatnot. But, uh, that part of your book made me go like, what do I, do I even know what Keynesianism is? How are they doing (laughs) Keynesianism now?
2: Yeah. I mean, that is such an important point to, to keep in the front of your mind. Like, in the 50s and 60s, the economy was growing so fast. I mean, in the U.S., they did do some Keynesian, like, spending, um, counter-cyclical spending. Yeah,
0: like, can you actually just define that? Because I feel like I'm a little unclear from I mean, what I thought.
2: Yeah. All it means is that, like, there's an attempt to smooth the business cycle. So this is, like, American-style Keynesianism, the, like, Eternal Republic Keynesianism. It just means, like you you try to smooth the business cycle. So like when there's a downturn and all these capitalists stop investing and it causes unemployment and it causes people's savings to disappear, the state steps in and it spends the money to sort of stabilize the investment climate and encourage capitalists to part with their money and to begin to invest again. Um, and And a lot of this is actually not like discretionary state spending. It's called automatic stabilizers. So things like, unemployment insurance that just automatically kicks in when people start losing their jobs to like prop up consumption. Um, uh,
0: the MMT people love to talk about automatic stabilizers.
2: Okay. Well, yeah, it's part of the Keynesian repertoire. So, But in any case, it's like you spend during the downturn and it, it makes the downturn much more shallow. And then the idea is that you raise taxes during the uh, upswing or you get more tax income anyway during the upswing and it allows you to like do this without having a big increase in debt. In fact, like most of the advanced capitalist countries, they didn't like have a stable debt level. They massively paid down their debts relative to GDP um, in the 50s and 60s. So they really weren't spending way more money than... um, then, you know, was was supportable within a kind of, like, very austere state project. Um, they were spending a lot more money, but it was because the economy was growing really quickly. So they were able to, like, spend all this stuff. And a lot of what they were spending was support for private capital development. Like, they were spending massively on infrastructure, like, roads and, you know, trains, like, you know, equipment to move all of this heavy industrial and consumer industrials crap around. Um, and they were also spending on like educating workers so that they could be part of, you know, an increasing um, increasingly skilled industrial workforce. So, you know, that spending, the state spending was all in support of private capitalist development and then which was its own generative engine and then basically what happened in the 70s is that capitalists saw this overaccumulation and they just stopped spending really like they just profit rates fell and they just stopped spending and all the keynesian tears that (laughs) flooded the 1970s could not get you know the capitalist horse to drink i don't know (laughs) that's good i like that the capitalist horse drinking keynesian tears i like that yeah, so It's evocative. The, horse, the industrial horse drinking Keynesian tears. So, yeah, and then what's happened since the 1970s is like states have spent more and more to try to convince capitalists to invest. They've not only spent more, they've massively dropped interest rates. They've made it for, you know, so that there's an incredible easy borrowing conditions. Um, they've, you know, screwed over workers. They've created huge classes of workers with like, many fewer rights who are more easily exploited. They've done everything that they could to try to get the engine going again. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. And what that means is that, like, for working people, not only are their wages not growing as fast and not only are they more insecure, but, like, a lot of the state benefits and protections and union protections that used to kind of protect them through bad times aren't really available in the same way. And so it, all of these reforms that are supposed to restart the growth engine actually just make people's lives, like, a lot worse. And that sucks.
0: Yeah. Oi. So let's talk about that. Because <laughs> people's lives are pretty bad these days, on no, the whole. not just because um, of
1: COVID, but that doesn't help. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a rough time. So you say that more so than unemployment, um, underemployment, Is the condition of our time the result of all of these processes um, as this this low-paid service sector has arisen to capture uh, many of those who would otherwise be unemployed in this era of deindustrialization? And these these sectors have arisen to exploit the growing income gap within the workforce, right? As the higher-paid workers... a, you know, they're fucking busy, too. They have less time for social reproduction. Um, and B, uh, you get people who don't have enough work to go in and do those tasks um, for very, very cheap. I'm not sure who is socially re- reproducing that class of people, but uh, I guess that's a, an open question as yeah. to whether... Um, the ranks of the underemployed will stay the same size even, or if uh, we're going to see some kind of population collapse. That's but, um, uh,
1: probably in the hidden crumbling abode of the uh, the capitalist household.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so how does that bode for the working class's ability to unite and organize if we're seeing this increasingly bifurcated labor force? Um, and additional question. How do the ranks of the fully unemployed factor in? Because we also have a lot of that going on right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So really interesting questions. I mean, one thing that I try to explain in the book is that when it comes to what it means to live in a world of like low, persistently low labor demand, it really is different depending on what country or region of the world you're in, right? So- You know, just a really simple example here is like in the U.S., you never really had very much labor protection. Like most people can be fired at any time as long as it's not for like a discriminatory reason. And we know that in the U.S., like actually even for discriminatory reasons, right, like people get fired all the time and even for union organizing, people get fired all the time. Um, And what that means is just that like in the U.S., even people who get full-time, there's no such thing as a permanent job in the U.S., but it it gives you a sense of how things work in in other parts of the world. But like even people who have full-time regular jobs, they can be very worried about their job security, right? Like they can be very worried that one wrong move can get them fired or like asking for a raise can get them fired, right? Um, So in the U.S., you have, like, insecurity that just really spreads throughout the whole workforce and even reaches into the college-educated workforce that, you know, a lot of people get college educations because um, they're trying to escape from that kind of insecurity. And, of course, we know that, like, a lot of people who have college educations really do experience extreme uh, kinds of employment insecurity. So that – it's true that unemployment rates have generally been higher – And that higher unemployment rate affects in the US, like many, many workers, right? Because they're afraid of falling into the unemployed. And so you get like insecurity that spreads throughout the workforce. Okay, have that model in your mind, your actual life, and then compare it to what goes on in Europe. In Europe, like in most countries, if you're hired as a permanent full, if you're hired as a regular full time employee, you're called a permanent employee. It's a crazy concept in america but basically I mean, it's like, good
0: and it's depressing i guess <laughs> i was like fuck who wants to work the same job their entire life till they yeah. die
2: yeah exactly right i mean you know this it should be said that like this provision of um a much higher degree of job security in europe came with the imposition of like you know they it was like conservative post-war states that were committed to, like, rebuilding imperial national identities, um, putting women, you know, keeping women out of the workforce and building these, like, you know, male breadwinner households to a much more extreme degree, like corporatism, it's called, you know, in Europe. Like, creating that kind of corporate, like, aligning the interests of the employees with the interests of, um, of their uh, bosses in a variety of ways. Like that was the European model, but what the workers got out of that was a much higher degree of job security. So what's happened is that like unions in Europe, even during this period of decline, they fought for and protected their core of permanently employed workers, and those workers have actually even been able to fight for a much higher degree of wage increases than than workers in the U.S. because they're just protected. From losing their jobs. They can't be fired in the same way. Like they can be laid off. Their companies can say, look, if you fight for higher wages, like we're just gonna have to close down these factories. And those kind of pressures are effective. But on the whole, the higher degree of job security for permanently employed workers in Europe has meant that they've been able to like protect themselves from very high unemployment rates in their countries. You know, like in France and Italy, you've had for a long time like 10% unemployment rates, but doesn't necessarily uh, affect as much this core permanently employed workers. So what did the state do? It encouraged the creation of all of these non-standard irregular workers, like temporary jobs, part-time jobs. And what's, what defines those jobs is that, is that it's a different legal category. They're not protected from being fired in the same way. And so those workers in the second category, the so-called precarious workforce, they're in a situation more analogous to like all workers in the United States. So that's like the uh, U.S.-Europe distinction. And then in the rest of the world, like most workers outside of Europe and the U.S. are informal. So they're in an even worse position than U.S. workers. They have even fewer protections. And that means they're even more subject to a persistently low demand for labor. So what we've seen since the 70s in basic or in some is that more and more workers around the world are exposed to the effects of this low demand for labor, and because they're more exposed, they find it harder to fight for wage increases. And we can see that on the charts. Like we can see the gap, growing gap between productivity and uh, wages. We can see the growing gap between like the labor incomes of the you know very well-to-do workers at the very very top and the rest of the working class. And we can see you know related to that the fall in the so-called labor share of income, but even all of that stuff, it's just an indicator of a much broader loss of autonomy that workers have at work. They're more scared for their conditions, and so they're more susceptible to all of these changes in work that make their lives more horrible and their working lives less in their control.
1: Yeah, I think this is a good place to uh, maybe go into the bonus portion. If we want to do maybe another half hour or so, we were going to talk about uh, communism. And I think that this is a mm-hmm. good, good opening spot to do that. So we'll, uh, people who want to stick around and become patrons, uh, if you're not already, we'll see you on the other side of the wall. Thanks, Aaron. So you
0: don't forget again
1: when it comes to cash, I've been getting smoked, lending my money, now I'm broke. Somebody's getting choked, because now it's time to pay the piper the Shit that's in a diaper. Don't make me have to call a sniper. Then wipe your brains off my windshield wiper. You dirty bug! As soon as I get paid, they come in masses. There's someone giving classes. i kissing people's asses. Unless you're living where the trash is, don't even come around here. Ask me where my cash is. <laughs> And if I get provoked, there'll be knuckles on your chin. Some people never learn. it from me, you might regret it. For one, I ain't no bank, and you got shitty credit. As soon as I get paid, they're coming out the woodwork. Take your
0: ass and get a job like you should, jerk. Unless you're living where the trash is, but you're not. So find another spot where the cash is.